everybody and welcome to a brand new podcast called Booksmart. I'm Laura Kersel and I'm here with Chris Fellingham. We're recording this live in the British Library and this podcast is just a chance to talk about the issues that interest us in the education and edtech worlds. Today's theme is Brexit and its impact on higher education and we're hoping in the future to talk about virtual reality, artificial intelligence and other exciting things that are affecting education. We're also hoping to bring you interviews with people that are way smarter than we are. We're going to start by introducing ourselves. So as I said, I'm Laura. I've got uh, my entire career history based in education. I was a primary school teacher for seven years um, and I did a lot of work when I was a primary school teacher on digital skills and coding and computing. Uh, Then I went on to work for an organisation called Code Club where we had a nationwide network of after school coding clubs for children aged 9 to 11. And now I work at FutureLearn where I'm a product manager for the learner experience team and we're just trying to build the best online learning experience that we can. Chris, tell us about you. Hello. Um, I don't have the same August CV that Laura does in education. I work in strategy for FutureLearn. What does that mean, Chris? That's a good question. Um, It's half research, so we look at all our internal data and try and make better decisions as a result. And the other half is supporting the managers to make strategic decisions about what the company should build and how it should make money. And you also have a firm footing in sort of competitor research as well, don't you? That's right. I write a fortnightly intelligence report, which kind of goes out to FutureLens partners and staff to inform them about what's happening in the wider world of edtech and education. Awesome. Okay, so as you know, today we're going to be talking about Brexit. Um, It's When I think about Brexit, I almost think like, that's really old and it's already happened but obviously it hasn't it's still an issue that is uh very pressing for everyone in the uk and and higher education in particular um can you run us through what the main issues are as you see them chris certainly um Brexit was obviously a massive deal for the UK higher education system it took a very pro remain stance during the debate and probably the first thing that took a hit was the perception of the UK as an open country. Rightly or wrongly, because the debate focused on immigration, when the UK voted to leave the EU, many newspapers around the world reported that this was a sign that the UK was less welcoming to immigrants and thus uh, for international students and staff. So uh, for universities in the UK, they obviously uh, have quite a lot of international students coming uh, to them to study, and it's a big way of them making money as well. Um, but what, do you, what impact do you think it will have on students wanting to come to the UK to study? It's hard not to see a negative influence on the numbers that will come in. At the moment, around 100,000 students study Uh, in the UK from different EU countries. Um, That's about 5% of full-time undergraduates. The main issue is about the funding. At the moment, EU students get the same funding as UK students, which is significantly less than that which they'd pay if they were international students. The UK government's promised that any students that come in in the academic year of 2017-18 will be funded throughout their entire bachelor's or master's degree. However, after that, it's not really known. The second problem is the visas. Um, Although it won't be much of a problem getting a student visa to study, a lot of students come to the UK because they want to work here afterwards. And no one's really sure what the post-work visa situation will be like for these students. The UK government seems to be taking 
a position that they want to reduce this number and that they do see students as part of that net immigration figure. Amber Rudd at the Conservative Party conference is now Home Secretary, and she said their mission was basically to crack down on international student numbers, and that did play out quite negatively. You had the Hindustan Times in India covering that the UK didn't really want international students. And what happens to research funding? Yes, that's a really big problem. Uh, The UK was one of the net beneficiaries of the EU research funding. Essentially, the UK put in around 4.3 billion and got back 7 billion. That means that the UK government will have to step in and fill the research gap. Now, they have promised to actually do some of that. They created a fund of about 2 billion, which will cover some of the gap. Um, But then there's the second problem, which is the research staff and collaboration. The staff also don't know whether they'll be able to get the same work visas to come and work and research in the UK. And that, uh, according to reports, is already starting to affect hiring positions in the UK. Wow, so there's quite a lot going on there. Um, Is there anything else that we should be worried about? Potentially the longer-term impact is a more existential one for UK higher education. A lot of academics were involved in the research that they hoped would help structure the debate around facts, um, and particularly economics. And during the debate, many felt that it wasn't a very fact-driven debate. Um, Afterwards, many in UK academia are now wondering what role they have in society if not to provide the kind of facts and evidence which help a debate on such a complex issue. Yeah, because back in June, Michael Gove was on Sky News uh, and he refused to name any economists who back Britain's exit from the European Union. And he infamously said that people in this country have had enough of experts. Um, We're going to play that clip for you now. The Bank of England, the IFS, the IMF, the CBI, five former NATO secretary-generals, the chief exec of the NHS and most of the leaders of the trade unions in Britain all say that you... Boris and Nigel are wrong. Why should the public trust you over them? I'm not asking the public to trust me. I'm asking the public to trust themselves. I'm asking the British public to take back control of our destiny from those organisations which are distant, unaccountable, elitist and don't have their, elitist, um, their own elitist, interests apart. Elitist. Absolutely. Because the Lord in... High Chancellor. A conspiracy of elites. It sounds like something like Wolf Hall. Well, I'm, I'm, I haven't seen Wolf Hall, but the one thing that I would say is that the people who are backing the Remain campaign, are people who've done very well, thank you, out of the European Union, and the people increasingly... Absolutely. So there's a... So there's and, the a... People, and the people... The people who are arguing that we should get out are concerned to ensure that the working people of this country at last get a fair deal. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts with uh, organisations from acronyms saying... The people of this country have had enough of experts? From organisations with acronyms saying that they know what is best and getting it consistently wrong. So, Laura, have people had enough of experts? Well, uh, if I'm giving Michael Gove the benefit of the doubt, I can sort of see what he's trying to get at in this respect... You know, in that interview, Faisal lists out the IFS, the IMF, the CBI, NATO. I think to the average person on the street, those kind of terms can be quite baffling. I think even I'm not fully sure what some of those acronyms mean uh, off the top of my head. And I'm generally against people using technical terms and jargon. Um, However, the people working at these places are just trying to do their jobs and to help us be informed about what might happen. And the idea of Gove saying, I'm on the side of the people, uh, and therefore implying that politicians are not distant and elitist makes me laugh a bit. I can't quite get my head around him saying 
that and meaning it genuinely. It, it seems like a good thing to say to win votes, doesn't it? It does. Michael Gove is obviously a politician, a former journalist, and a man with a quite good education himself. Do you think he really means it? Mm, I don't know. The word for this is demagogue, right? It's a political leader who seeks support by appealing to popular desires and prejudices rather than using rational argument. I think he's that. (laughs) (laughs) But I could be a bit biased because I was a teacher during his time as education secretary. He was quite divisive. (laughs) He definitely was. Is there any evidence to suggest Michael goes right? I mean... I can't find any, <laughs> aside from sort of rhetoric and uh, sort of anecdotal evidence. Some surveys that have been done have showed kind of the opposite. So an Ipsos Mori survey showed that academics come behind only friends and family in terms of whom people trust on issues related to the referendum. And politicians such as Gove came in at 11%, whilst the academics came in at 57%. So that kind of says a lot, doesn't it? Uh, and there was a separate poll uh which was the surveyation poll for the british future and that found that 63 percent of people thought that economists could be trusted so um the facts are not really on michael gove's side this is for the dreamers the forward thinkers For the innovators. The defiant. So a few weeks ago, I was on holiday in California. It was amazing. But one of the things I saw was an advert for Audacity on the TV. I'm quite a sucker for this type of thing. I found it really inspiring. There was robotic arms. There was self-driving cars. There was the promise that if you took an Audacity course, you could end up with a job in Silicon Valley. Um, Chris, let's backtrack a bit. And can you tell us a bit more about Audacity? Who are they? What do they do? Udacity were one of the first MOOC platforms. And they, like Coursera, they grew up at the Stanford University. Sebastian Thruns was the founder of Udacity, uh, and he has a background in computer science, artificial intelligence, and even works on Google's self-driving car. His idea for Udacity was it would basically be a MOOC platform that specialised in the kind of very trendy but important skills that you're seeing in Silicon Valley, mostly around computer science. He's built his platform with lots of big Silicon Valley companies, Google, Facebook, Hadoop, are all contributors to that, and he's been doing very well. So what does the TV advert mean? Have they hit the big time? Are they now mainstream? You could say that. TV is a very effective form of advertising, but it's very expensive, especially if you advertise in prime time. That means the cost per acquisition, effectively each user that you persuade to then go to Udacity afterwards, is quite high because you're competing with all the other commercials on television. We probably can assume that they think if they haven't hit the big time yet, they're definitely very close they're forecast to make a big profit this year, and they recently were valued at over $1 billion. Woof! So the answer to have they hit the big time is just kind of yes, really. I'd say so. Thanks, everyone, for joining us on this first ever Booksmart podcast. Um, we're kind of feeling our way with it, so if you've got any feedback, let us know. We're hoping to bring you an interview next time uh, and talk a bit about VR, so keep an eye on our SoundCloud page for further updates and for the next episode. 
if you want to keep in touch, you can follow me uh, on twitter.com. I'm at Laura Kersop. Kersop is spelled K-I-R-S-O-P. Chris, can people follow you anywhere? Probably not. Wow, unfriendly. <laughs> Never mind, just follow me. I'll, I'll tell you everything you need to know. Uh, thank you and see you in a month's time. Bye! Have you ever done any radio recording before? Definitely not. Really, never. No. I, Too shy. I've done a bit. Uh, I was a, I was a DJ on student radio when I was at LSE. Um, I got an award for it, an award for like third best show of the year or something. But also, I got banned. How did you get banned? <laughs> Basically, we used to have the graveyard slot, and they moved us to daytime. Uh, and so we played in the cafes, but we used to play like really awful, noisy music and swear. And so they they stopped us having a radio show. <laughs> so I think yeah, banned from student radio should probably be my like Twitter byline or something. Yeah. <laughs>